Welcome to the first ever episode of Freud in Focus, a podcast from the Freud Museum London, hosted by my colleague Tom DeRose and me, Jamie Ruers, and produced by Carolina Heller. In this series, we'll be looking at Sigmund Freud's key texts over five episodes. Each episode will be released every other Wednesday, and we'll take a break before embarking on the next work. If you have any questions or comments that you'd like to add to the conversation, please visit our website, freud.org.uk, and head over to our podcast section, where you can leave a message at the bottom of the page. We will answer some of those questions in the following episode. So tell us what we'll be reading first, Tom. So the first text that we'll be focusing on is Freud's 1920 publication, Beyond the Pleasure Principle. In this first episode, we'll be thinking about the historical context which surrounds the text publication and also where it sits in the canon of Freud's work. After thinking about what Freud might mean when he uses the term the pleasure principle, we'll then go on to discuss some of the prominent themes of the first two chapters. The essay was published in 1920, so I'd really like to start by looking at what was happening in the world in the time it was written, and particularly what was happening around Freud, who was based in Vienna, Austria. In 1920, the world was still recovering from the traumas of the First World War. Freud's three sons, Jean-Martin, Oliver, and Ernst, all served in combat and were fortunate enough to return home pretty unscathed from war, despite many other families and individuals who were suffering from the effects of the war, particularly from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. The end of the war also marked the end of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, of which the imperial seat was Vienna, ruled for centuries by the Habsburg monarchy. As a new independent state, Austria was entering a period of financial recession and the city of Vienna was ushering in a new socialist government. It was a real period of political change and uncertainty, like much of Europe. But politics aside, between 1918 and 1920, the world was also deeply affected by the Spanish flu pandemic. Unlike the COVID-19 pandemic today, it affected people mostly in their 20s and 30s, and the deadliest second wave came in autumn 1918. This deadly peak is attributed to soldiers returning from combat. So this is the tumultuous moment in history when Freud is beginning to write beyond the pleasure principle. But Tom, maybe you could tell us, what place does this text occupy in Freud's theories? What had come before and, and what had he already written about? Well, if we date the beginning of Freudian psychoanalysis uh, from the publication of the Interpretation of Dreams in 1900, Freud carried on writing and publishing until his death in 1939. So chronologically, we're at the midpoint of his psychoanalytic career. In 1920, psychoanalysis is a well-established therapeutic practice, but it also has a body of knowledge 
or a theoretical framework underpinning it. The theory of psychoanalysis was laid down by Freud in 1915 with the publication of the so-called meta-psychological papers, including Instincts and Their Vicissitudes, and the papers on repression and the unconscious. Looking back in 1931, Freud describes Beyond the Pleasure Principle as the point in which he was able to reaffirm the duality of his theory of the instincts, or drives as we'll often refer to them here, which he suggested was under threat after the publication of his paper on narcissism in 1914. Now we'll explore what Freud meant by this later on in the podcast series. So Beyond the Pleasure Principle is really a text that looks forwards as much as it looks backwards. It helps to usher in Freud's theory of the structural model of the mind, which he formulated in The Ego and the Id in 1923. And it also paves the way for the great culturally oriented works of the late 20s and 30s, such as The Future of an Illusion, Civilization and Its Discontents, and Moses and Monotheism. I'd like to ask you now about the pleasure principle. Describing any Freudian theory is a mammoth task, uh, but how would you, or how would one, describe the pleasure principle? Well, it certainly is a mammoth task, really. Um, there's a certain fluidity to Freud's concepts that partially stems from the very nature of psychoanalytic knowledge itself. So concepts are formulated primarily through clinical experience, and then they're modified through their exposure to further clinical experience. This scientific method of adduction and deduction is something that Freud explicitly subscribed to in the opening paragraphs of Instincts and Their Vicissitudes in 1915. Indeed, the writing of Beyond the Pleasure Principle partly came out of Freud's own engagement with the phenomenon of war neurosis, or PTSD as we would now describe it. So rather than attempt a dictionary definition of the pleasure principle, it might be worthwhile to track some of its modifications up to 1920. In the interpretation of dreams, the pleasure principle first appears as the unpleasure principle. So from the very beginning, the concept is posited in the negative. So we're not thinking here then of a, a kind of correlative of hedonism. We're not actively impelled to seek pleasure from the world around us by the gratification of our senses. Rather, the workings of our psychical apparatus are regulated by the tendency to get rid of or to discharge unpleasurable tension. In formulations on the two principles of mental functioning from 1911, Freud develops the idea of the pleasure principle, which in its original form seeks to discharge tension immediately by introducing 
the reality principle. The reality principle helps us to modify the pleasure principle's aims because it recognises the fact that not all immediate discharges of tension are to the benefit of the individual. Sometimes they might result in danger, like running across the road to buy a sandwich in order to assuage the pangs of hunger. And sometimes a greater yield of pleasure will be available by delaying the satisfaction. So that sandwich will then taste even more delicious if we wait a little longer before we consume it. Now, by the time we get to beyond the pleasure principle, Freud is describing this increase in pleasure or decrease in unpleasure, which the pleasure principle regulates, as the economic aspect of psychoanalytic theory. So when Freud began working on Beyond the Pleasure Principle in 1919, the pleasure principle was already a well-established concept. Could you then tell us a little more about how Freud further develops the concept here and also why he was looking for something beyond the pleasure principle? So in the first chapter of our text, the concept of the pleasure principle is further elaborated on when Freud describes unpleasure as an increase in the quantity of unbound excitation in the mind. Now, this excitation might be bound by an idea, for example. And also that pleasure is related to a decrease in the quantity of unbound excitation over a period of time. So you can almost plot a graph here to represent the pleasure principle. With the quantity of unbound excitation on the y-axis and the length of time on the x-axis. Therefore, Freud suggests that the pleasure principle can be related to the principle of constancy, which appeared in the studies in hysteria. But if our psychical apparatus is regulated by such a principle, why, asks Freud, do we experience, and indeed re-experience, so much pain and unpleasure in our lives. Living through the First World War and the subsequent trauma that was caused it kind of really foregrounds this question for Freud. While some of these manifestations of pain and unpleasure can be accounted for economically by the pleasure principle, Freud was impelled to ask whether there might be something else at work, something beyond that might help to understand the devastation of those recent years. Let's look at Freud's famous description of the childhood game of Fort Da. I'm just going to read the passage now that Freud writes in Beyond the Pleasure Principle. And if you'd like to find this yourself, it's in the Standard Edition, Volume 18, page 14. The child was not at all precocious in his intellectual development. At the age of one and a half, he could say only a few comprehensible words. He could also make use of a number of sounds, which expressed a meaning intelligible to those around him. 
He was, however, on good terms with his parents and their one servant girl, and tributes were paid to his being a good boy. He did not disturb his parents at night. He conscientiously obeyed orders not to touch certain things or go into certain rooms. And above all, he never cried when his mother left him for a few hours. At the same time, he was greatly attached to his mother, who had not only fed him herself, but had also looked after him without any outside help. This good little boy, however, had an occasional disturbing habit of taking any small objects he could get a hold of and throwing them away from him into a corner, under the bed, and so on, so that hunting for his toys and picking them up was often quite a business. As he did this, he gave vent to a loud, long-drawn-out ooh, accompanied by an expression of interest and satisfaction. His mother and the writer of the present account were agreed in thinking that this was not a mere interjection, but represented the German word fort, or gone. I eventually realized that it was a game, and that the only use he made of any of his toys was to play gone with them. One day, I made an observation which confirmed my view. The child had a wooden reel with a piece of string tied round it. It never occurred to him to pull it along the floor behind him, for instance, and play at its being a carriage. What he did was to hold the reel by the string and very skillfully throw it over the edge of his curtained cot so that it disappeared into it, at the same time uttering his expressive ooh. He then pulled the reel out of the cot again by the string and hailed its reappearance with a joyful da or there. This then was the complete game, disappearance and return. As a rule, one only witnessed its first act, which was repeated untiringly as a game in itself, though there is no doubt that the greater pleasure was attached to the second act. In so many ways, this is such a delightful case study. There's such an innocence to how this child is playing and, and we feel like we're there observing him with Freud. But how is Freud interpreting this young child's game and what relevance does it have to searching for something beyond the pleasure principle? So we're still thinking here about the economic motivation for the child's game. So how do we calculate the yield of pleasure involved. Freud's interpretation centres on what he describes as the great cultural achievement of the child's instinctual renunciation in the act of allowing his mother to go without protesting. In order to compensate for the unpleasure associated with his mother's absence, 
The child invents a game in which he stages the disappearance and subsequent reappearance of various objects. Therefore, the game can be viewed as a symbolic representation of the absence and return of the mother. But to complicate matters, Freud goes on to describe that it was often only the first part of the game, representing the unpleasurable absences or the fault that the child enacted, and not the return. This fact seems contradictory under the rubric of the pleasure principle. In order to solve this puzzle, Freud suggests that the establishment of a sense of mastery is fundamental to the logic of the game. In the original encounter with the mother, the child is in a passive position, being acted upon. But in the game, the child adopts an active role. If he can will the departure, then perhaps he can also will the return. The sense of mastery that Freud uncovers can be related to the notion of working through the traumatic absence in order to come to terms with it, to re-experience it in a safe, controlled and predictable manner. He goes on to suggest that this is a model for adult play too, and that this sense of mastery might help us to understand the yield of pleasure that a spectator gains in the experience of tragic drama from an economic point of view. What's crucial here is I think that the example of the Fort Dar game can be accounted for within the parameters of the pleasure principle and does not need the presence of something beyond to explain it. Freud once described his case studies as reading like detective stories and perhaps we can see in the description and analysis of the Fort Dar game a classic narrative device of the detective genre, namely the red herring. And the Fort Dar passage is crucial for other more personal reasons. It marks a period of tragedy for Freud. Could you tell us more about this? Absolutely. The point in the text that really marks this personal tragedy is in a rather dispassionate footnote that begins, when the child was five and three quarters, his mother died. The child's mother was in fact Freud's daughter, Sophie, who died in the Spanish flu pandemic in 1920. We know that Freud was deeply shaken by the death of his daughter, whom he called his Sunday child, and whom he was known to favour. It's often been remarked that the so-called pessimism of Beyond the Pleasure Principle can be understood through the prism of this personal tragedy. Freud himself anticipated such an interpretation and was keen to dismiss the connection. Writing to Max Eitingen in July 1920 that the beyond is finally finished, you will be able to certify that it was half finished when Sophie was alive and flourishing. We'll speak at greater length next week 
about the break in the writing of the text. But despite Freud's words to the contrary, it is tempting for us, as present-day readers, to look through a rearview mirror, if you will, and to conclude that this is indeed a text that is marked by personal tragedy. Perhaps the completion of Beyond the Pleasure Principle might be viewed as the completion of the Fort Dar game of writing itself. The attempt to master trauma, which seems to be the hallmark of so many creative endeavours. Thanks, Tom. That's really helpful to have that insight into the personal aspect behind this because as you as you've shown it was an incredibly meaningful and time and timely for Freud to be writing about this. I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week but don't forget to subscribe so that you're notified when our next episode is out on the 3rd of March. If you have any questions or comments please head to the Freud Museum website freud.org.uk and visit our podcast page. At the bottom, you can leave your message and we'll try to answer some of those questions at the start of next session. Thanks so much to my co-host Tom DeRose and our producer Carolina Heller. And we'll see you next time for episode two, Biology, Speculation and the Compulsion to Repeat in Beyond the Pleasure Principle. Mm-hmm.